Welcome back to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. Today I'll be doing a deep dive on fundraising with Nathan Becker. Nathan is a CEO of foundersuite.com, a venture-backed company that makes the leading fundraising stack for startups raising capital. Since launching in 2016, users have raised over 3 billion dollars in venture capital using the platform. Prior to starting Foundersuite, Nathan spent 10 years working with over 150 startups as interim CFO, business developer and advisor. Now let's talk to him. Hi Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey Rahul, thanks for having me here. Let's start with Founder Suite. So what could you please tell me like what is Founder Suite and then why did you build? Why did you Yeah, build I'd love to. So Founder Suite is my startup. I started this going on 6 plus years ago now. and it's a software platform for raising capital. So we serve mostly startups. We've got close to 3000 startups on the platform using the platform to raise capital. We also have about 50 venture funds and another 70 or so investment bankers, funding consultants. But basically it's a, a collection of tools to help companies raise capital. We have a database of about 200,000 investors to help build a target list. We have a CRM for managing the entire fundraise. we have outbound marketing tools like a pitch deck tool a an email tool investor updates for doing the communications and ongoing relationship building with investors and we have a a data room for putting in your confidential documents and sharing that through due diligence and then we have a collection of startup docs and templates things like cap tables term sheets for really closing the deal so it's kind of just an end to end set of tools for helping companies raise capital and it's been been pretty successful finding some pretty good results in the marketplace our customers have raised over 3 billion globally so seen some good action nice 3 billion dollars so it's like kind of like a full stack for all your fundraising needs are taken care of that's right yeah um, and that's really what we're aiming for we're trying to we've been building this out kind of piece by piece we just launched the data room right we're we've got some other things we're coming out with we're trying to capture that entire stack it's a good way to yeah. put it yeah So what kind of startups are your target I mean what stage of startups are your target market so at the seed stage yeah. maybe the It's it's a good question it's historically we've been very heavy on the seed stage the really early stage pre-seed seed angel rounds and that was really our focus especially in the early days we've been trying to grow with our customers though right cuz maybe 2 years ago you were seed stage and now you're series A series B whatever you know you're you're going up the food chain we're trying to still be useful and relevant for you as you grow our database used to only be angel investors and now our database has venture firms strategic investors family offices even private equity right so it's our database now has later stage investors so we're really trying to kind of help companies along the whole life life journey it's still pretty heavily concentrated on seed customers but But yeah, we get we get even like series B, series C companies on here from time to time. Uh, very strong and healthy in like the life science and bio space. I think they enjoy the, you know, I often say we're helping you run a process and really make this kind of a scientific equation of fundraising. I think the biotech and scientist guys and gals really appreciate that in particular. <laughs> so, I thought the later stage startups would be using your platform because if it's if you if it's an early stage startups maybe they can't afford it so how is your pricing like and then why do you think like early stage startups are still using it i mean instead of like a google sheet yeah absolutely so startups 
we are a startup. We've been a startup. I've worked with many startups. Startups don't have a lot of money. That's always an issue. Our pricing is pretty, I, I like to think it's kind of ridiculously low. Our We have a free version that doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but it is free. No credit card required. Free forever. Doesn't expire. And then the next plan up is $49 a month. And that's for the entire company. So you can have multiple users. A lot of our you know, other competitors charge per user, but we're just $49 a company per month. And then the top plan for startups is $69 a month. And that again, that includes everything, multiple users. We have one other pricing thing that's for investment bankers. That's $150 a month, which lets them run multiple deals under one account. But basically most startups are paying between $49 and $69 a month. So it's not... You yeah, know, it's not going to break the bank. And frankly, yeah. we're replacing a lot of tools or we're a substitute for a lot of much more expensive tools, right? If you're using Docsend for your, your pitch deck, if you're using PitchBook or CoinSpace for the investor database, we're replacing a lot of other yeah. tools and putting them all together. So, um, but yeah, there's always the Google spreadsheet or some people use like Airtable and stuff to manage their pipeline. You can do it, right? It's ours is a purpose-built tool designed around the thousand little nuances of fundraising. Sure, you can use a spreadsheet for that. And I used to actually build spreadsheets for startups before launching this company. The problem with the spreadsheet though, is that you can build a very elegant spreadsheet, but about a week or two into it, when you're actually meeting with lots and lots of investors, it becomes really messy and things just start to kind of slip through the cracks. I know this from firsthand experience because I used to build these spreadsheets for startups and it would work great for two or three weeks. And then they're like, I'm drowning here. I can't keep up with all these like follow-up action items. So I think that's the real benefit of having a, a software platform dedicated to this. Yeah. So may I ask like, uh, why did you decide to build this? I mean, I'm not just asking that, you know, going from spreadsheets to like actually building a SaaS uh, product. Why do this, like, you know, help startups fundraise? Yeah, so <laughs> my little backstory, if you want to call it that, I was working in investment banking and, and did that for a while, helping companies raise capital. Way back when I worked in the dot-com boom, helping companies like go public. And then later on worked in JP Morgan's private placement group, helping companies raise like later stage rounds, series B, series C, mezzanine rounds. But always in the back of my head, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't have any good ideas, really. <laughs> so I was like thinking of, you know, different different apps and, you know, trying to come up with something to, to start as a startup. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build something. After literally a decade of just consulting to startups, helping startups with their fundraise, I'm, that's when the light bulb finally, finally hit. I kind of credit you know, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz, very, very famous, very smart VC. He came out with this phrase, I'm sure you've heard, software, software is eating the world. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's it was like, gosh, that's, you know, it's it's such a simple statement. Software is eating the world. But what he meant is like every industry is going to get software applied to it or automated, semi-automated. And and you're seeing this in all kinds of industries, right? And so that was when the this light bulb finally went off. Like, hey, I know how to raise capital. I want to build a software startup or a tech startup. Why don't I build tools for this? And there was a real a real pain point too. The having worked with hundreds of startups, I saw how difficult it is to raise capital. Right? Talk to founders who raised money, and no one says it was easy. <laughs> it's painful. It's time consuming. You're getting rejected constantly. And so I knew there was an opportunity there. Now, what I didn't know is there a market, right? Because like you you mentioned a few minutes ago, 
startups don't have a lot of money. So there's always this question mark, can I get startups to pay for this? And fortunately, that's worked out okay. But <laughs> yeah, that's the, the story. Yeah. So your tools help startups find the right investors, right? So, I mean, based on your experience and also the collective experience of everybody using the platform, uh, what do you think should be the approach in terms of logistics of finding a, the, the investor match? And also, like, what are you trying to assess as a founder? Uh, it's like either matching values or matching the, the in common interest or maybe the skill set that the investor brings in? Yes, all of the above, of course, is the, is the answer. But how do you really do that? It's still a very painful process to source investors and to build what I call building that target list of investors is still very painful and time consuming. It used to be much harder, just for reference, when I was consulting the startups, you know, 10 years ago, obviously we had the internet, but like it was way harder to actually research. Now there's a lot of lists. There's a lot of stuff, you know, out there. There's databases like Crutchbase, Foundersuite, PitchBook, AngelList that you can actually search. So that's very helpful. So it used to be way harder, but it's still very hard. But getting to your point or to your question, what I like to say is, okay, first you're looking for, first you're trying to do general searches and find investors that basically match your criteria, that invest in your industry, that invest stage. in your stage, right? Because most investors are either pre-seed, seed, series A, later stage, right? So you're finding find the right ones that do stage, right? Geographic location, it's becoming less important, but a lot of investors still focus on a specific, you know, area or region. And and so that's the first screen, right? And then and you can search on that in our database and other other databases out there. Then once you've once you've kind of built a list of investors that invest in fintech, seed stage, New York City or whatever, Singapore, then what I like to say is you're you're going through the results and looking for clues. You're looking for clues either that they are actually a good fit for you or they're or they're not. And a lot of that is going to their website. Maybe it's going on to their Twitter feed. They have like a profile on Foundersuite. You can see like previous deals. And if you see all their pre, maybe they call themselves a seed stage investor, but all their previous deals or most of them are really like later stage deals. Okay, that's a clue. They're probably not a fit. Or if you're on the website and you see they have a competitor, one of your competitors on there, that's a clue. They're not a fit. Or you're reading their Twitter and they're saying, you know, we're really actively looking for SaaS fintech startups, or they have a new thesis they came out with, you know, they're looking for web three metaverse companies doing fintech or whatever, right? I'm just making stuff up. You're looking for clues like, oh, these guys actually look pretty good. And then kind of once you've gone through that cycle of removing people that look not so good and keeping the people that are, do look good, now you're starting to get that sort of more like qualitative feel for who looks good. And some of that you can tell by what they're writing on their blog post or what they're tweeting, right? You're kind of getting a feel for personality at this point. And then, of course, once you've gone beyond that, it's when you start to get into to pitch meetings and then it becomes really, can I work with this person? Do I feel, it, it becomes more like gut feel, you know? Can I work with you for the next five or six years? Do I feel good about our relationship or does something throw me off? Does something make me a little anxious about our, our relationship, right? And I would also say, just to continue with this, it's a long, long answer, I know, but also doing kind of reference checks on those investors that you get way down the pipeline with, right? Talk to other founders they've invested in, ask those founders, how was Rahul when things got rocky for your startup, right? If you missed a quarter, 
oh, you didn't hit your revenue targets or how was Rahul during the COVID, March of 2020 when COVID hit? Like, did he vanish or was he like actively trying to help out, right? We're kind of getting into like how, how this person really behaves on the ground. So long answer, but that's kind of the whole cycle if you, if you go from A to Z. Other than the fit, like you're also trying to kind of have somebody who can like take you places, right? So in that aspect, like what are the qualities, the expertise or things like that, uh, that you should look for in an investor? And why is this important? Yeah, I love this is a, another great question. I'd say separate to all this research and qualifying that we just talked about, I would say go into your conference room, get the whiteboard out and really make a list of like, on, like seek, do a little soul searching and make a list of the qualities you're looking for. And that can be things like people who can give you great strategic advice. Maybe you're a first-time entrepreneur. You're kind of <laughs> a little clueless on, on how business works. Maybe you don't have a business degree, you know, whatever. So make a list of all the things that you're looking for in an investor. Maybe it's someone who can open up their Rolodex and make a lot of introductions to other investors. Maybe it's someone who can really help you on marketing or product design or uh, general strategy, whatever it may be, or recruiting. That's a big one. So making a list of all the things you're looking for and almost like do a little customer development exercise, right? Our dream team of investors would be XYZ, a big, well-known fund, even some intangible things like I want a VC that has a really marquee reputation, like a Kleiner Perkins or Sequoia. Maybe that's important to you because that has branding and signaling effects when you launch your you know, press release about who funded you. It, it's great to put in that. Maybe that's not so important to you. Maybe you really want an investor who's going to roll up the sleeves, who's been there in your industry. Maybe someone who had not financial expertise or that came from investment banking or whatever, but was a former founder who can help you see around corners, right? So anyway, making that list of what you really need and be honest about it, where your weaknesses are. That's how I would kind of try and identify that. And then I've even seen some people make little matrices of all the short list of their investors, how many of those check boxes they actually tick, right? This investor has the name brand, they have the previous operating experience, right? And then you can kind of assess. Now that that helps if you have the luxury of choosing who to let into your cap table. Not all founders have that, right? But but yeah. for the the ones that do and have a lot of interest in their deal, being able to choose, that's how they kind of prioritize who to pick. Founders might have like a way of looking at maybe they want, for example, right, like a marquee investor. But I've heard other investors say that sometimes you would want investment from like a small firm because they would put in a lot of effort to make you succeed rather than maybe raising a seed round from, let's say, Andreessen Horowitz or something because they invest in a lot of seed startups and they don't really care if you fail. So uh, yeah. what do you think are some of the mistakes in terms of assumptions that founders make? I, I would say, even though I do think there is good positive branding from having a big name marquee firm, I would probably lean towards maybe a newer fund that is trying to make their name, right? They're going to be hungrier. <laughs> they're going to be hungrier, yeah. scrappier, hopefully, right? I mean, hopefully that's the case where they're trying to build their brand and they're going to hustle harder for you. I think I think I would actually like that a little bit more. Some people are looking also for someone like Mark Suster, someone that has a huge online social following. I mean, so maybe that's important too. I think where, where founders make mistakes are being too caught up in the brand name, right? And not having a good personal fit with the person, right? At the end of the day, this is a human-to-human -human interaction you're having there. That person... 
that investor, a human is going to be on your board, most likely. And, you know, you're going to be talking to him or her a lot over several years. So if you were focusing only on the marquee brand name, but you didn't have a good fit for a good personal fit, that would be a huge mistake. Other mistakes founders make are like focusing too much on valuation. And again, not optimizing for like skill set or fit. They just want the highest valuation. Whoever will pay the most for the deal. And I think that that comes back also. And I would say just another kind of side doing is not doing the due diligence, right? Not doing the reference checking and background checking on investors, getting too caught up in the excitement of getting investors. It's exciting to get investors interested, right? Because most of the time you're getting rejected when you're raising capital. So when someone actually is interested in you, it's really exciting. And I think founders sometimes skip over the steps of actually doing the due diligence. And I've seen some horror stories where founders get these investors on their on their board, on their cap table, and their life becomes hell, right? Because these investors are, for lack of a better term, a-holes. Hope I can yeah. kind of swear on your show. But, right, and, and, and then your life is hell. You've got an investor that doesn't like you or that makes your life a living hell because, you know, they have their own agenda or they have their own vision for your company. It really is unpleasant. I've seen even CEOs and founders get fired by their investors a few times. It's ugly when it happens. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? It's the name of the VC fund itself or the, the brand of the VC fund doesn't really matter. <laughs> the, the, it, it all depends on the partner that you're working with, the investor yeah. that is, who's going to be on your board, right? I, I mean, I don't think I realized this like very recently. Absolutely. And yeah, I think I think that basically says it all. I mean, it is great to have that marquee brand. And VCs now, I think, are trying to differentiate themselves a little bit. Like, for example, Andreessen Horowitz is a great example. They differentiated themselves by having, I want to say like 100 people on their staff. Uh, maybe there's yeah. some other number. Huge, Some huge number of people that provide all this operational support, right? Yeah. That's that was genius. That venture firms didn't do that 15 years ago or whatever. So that was like a huge value add and really set them apart from other VCs. And we're seeing, I, we just had a, a venture fund on our podcast recently, and their whole differentiation was it's called Character.VC, newer fund. But they, the guys and gal, were at Google Ventures and they led the design sprint. So their whole value add is. They can come in and do these design sprints, these product design sprints for their portfolio companies to help you do faster iteration on your product. So if that's important to you, that might be a great VC for you, right? So yeah. beyond everything else we've just discussed, kind of take a look at how v this VC is sort of like trying to differentiate themselves in the market and what services and value they claim to provide. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how do you think startups can like really wow the investors? Like even before the, the pitch meeting and during the pitch meeting. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot to that question. It's always great. I think of this as marketing, right? I think of kind of fundraising as sort of sales, a sales process, but there's also a, a heavy marketing element to it. It's always great if investors hear of you before you approach them, right? They've they've heard about you in the news and TechCrunch. They've seen you speak on stage at... TechCrunch Disrupt or whatever, you know, industry conference maybe is relevant to you. They see you're, you dropping into their Twitter 
thread frequently because other people are resharing your stuff. I mean, stuff like that. But it's always great if investors hear about you. Beyond that, you know, once you kind of get into into the interactions with them, I mean, it becomes a, a bunch of different factors. Obviously, who connects you is a good, important thing, right? You can reach out cold to investors, but that's not super effective. If you can get a a warm intro, I mean, most people know this, so I won't go into too much detail. But if you can get a warm intro to the investors, that's always really strong. And some warm intros are better than others. One of the little stories I tell sometimes when I was raising capital for Founder Suite, there was a a dad. My kids were in preschool, and there was a, a dad. We had a dad's group that would meet, watch football, and stuff like that. And one of the other dads had recently sold his company to Yahoo for like $740 million, right? Big successful exit. And he made, I don't know, maybe five or six intros to investors for me because he just liked me. Everyone he introed me to was super responsive, got back to me like within seconds, right? That was a very strong intro source. So that can really impress investors that someone who's been successful is willing to to intro you or vouch for you. And then beyond that, you know, we get into like first impressions during the pitch meeting. What do your slides look like? Like one of the biggest mistakes I see founders make is their slide deck is just not very good. I always tell founders, you need to be giving your pitch at least 10 times to people who will give you feedback, honest feedback, before you go start talking to investors, right? Make sure your pitch is absolutely amazing, super clean, crisp, simple, has a really nice story arc to it, right? I mean, there's a, we could talk for hours just about what makes a good pitch deck, yeah. but make sure your pitch is really, really good before you go out talking to investors. And then even once you do start talking to investors, I often recommend maybe start with your your B list or your C list. You're not your yeah. dream investors, but you're the ones you're, you're a little bit lower down your list just to get some reps and cycles in so that when you get in front of Andreessen Horowitz or whoever's on your A list, you've really got it nailed, practiced, polished, you're confident in your delivery, all that stuff. So again, I'm giving you these long answers to your simple questions, but hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've had uh, another investor also mentioned that, you know, you should, you know, talk to a lot of lower, not not top tier VCs, not your top targets first, so that you can find your pitch and then talk to your priority ones. But I also had a different investor who, who mentioned that you should know, you should talk to your Go to investors first so that you can know what is the outcome quickly. Huh, interesting. I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I would say if you investors like to know and they will probe to find out if other investors are sort of interested in the mix. So I think I would still stick with the strategy of going to to your lower tier investors first, because then once you get to your top tier investors, if you can come to them having refined your pitch, but also come to them saying, Hey, we've got we've been meeting with investors for a week now or two weeks now. I'm really glad I could meet with you because you are on my A list, right? You're actually saying you're on my A list. It looks like I've got two term sheets coming in this week, you know. But I really wanted to meet with you and, and go through this thing. I, I think it's always nice to be able to signal that there are other investors pursuing you, and I think this works kind of across the spectrum. So. I don't know. I think it still makes sense to to maybe talk to a few of your lower ones first. But and frankly, you might even find that even though this this venture firm was maybe your second tier, you might find you have a really good rapport with them, right? So you wouldn't I wouldn't just like rule them out because you have them 
on your your second tier list. If you've got a great rapport with them and they have a good reputation and everything, keep them keep them active. You know. Yeah, you are bound to hear a lot of no's. So, <laughs> how do you deal with no's? And then what do you do? Yeah. So yes, you're gonna hear a lot, a lot of no's. One of the things I I use our example, my personal example, as a, a little story quite a bit. When I went out and pitched for our seed round, I pitched over 200 investors and ended up landing one seed venture fund and 10 angels. If you do that math, that is about a 5% conversion rate, meaning I got rejected 95% of the time. And that is actually, I think, pretty typical unless you have a screaming white hot deal getting rejected like that is actually pretty common. You know, so so what do you do with that? So first of all, just being just accepting that that's normal. I think a lot of founders get into this. They've been successful in in their in their career in sports. What? Or in consulting, or uh, maybe work for a big company. They haven't <laughs> heard a lot yeah. of those in life. Totally right. They've been they, yeah. They worked for Bain and Company. They worked for government, whatever. You know, they've been successful, and then they get into this startup game, which is way harder. No one really tells you this. Startups are way harder than anyone tells you. Right. You you have to kind of experience it to understand that. You get into the startup thing which is way harder and you're getting rejected constantly by these investors that you sort of idolize and you, you know, it hurts, it hurts. So anyway, just accepting that getting rejected constantly is normal. Try not to overanalyze it. You know, some investors will give you a little bit of feedback. Like I don't like your business model. I don't, you know, they'll give you feedback why they passed on you. Right. I don't like your market. I don't like your team, whatever it may be. And that can, spin your head around and a lot of times even the the feedback you get from investors is contrary or c- contradictory to each other so it can make your head spin and over and over so i think just coping with no's and and if you're seeing a pattern like nine out of ten who rejected you are rejecting because they don't feel the team is is the right team maybe you you should identify and and work on that and think about that but also being able to let the other nose just kind of wash all over you, right? And not overanalyze it or not let them get in your way. Also, I think just getting feedback, like where where did you get stuck on this story? Did you not understand our market, our, our market vision? Did you not understand our roadback? And then, you know, going back and making your pitch, your pitch better, of course. And I think just moving on pretty quickly, right? So not getting stuck in this trap of trying to turn around investors that said no. I think founders are, are competitive people by nature and they're like, oh, you just said no to me. Well, why? Okay. Because you don't like the market size. Well, let me come back and argue with you about why I actually think the market, you know, it's very hard once an investor said no to turn them around to a yes. So I think just moving on pretty quickly is uh, is good. And frankly, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt if you actually had a good rapport with someone, but they passed on you anyway. Saying something like, okay, no problem. I, I respect your decision. I really liked you. Could I keep you up up to date with the, uh, can I put you on our investor update list? We send out, you know, once a quarter just so you can kind of follow along the story. So maybe our next round, you know, this might sink better for you. Keeping a, a slight door open with the ones you really like, I think is okay too. Yeah. 
so uh, so to summarize yeah, it, it's kind of like using no as a as a way to get to yes <laughs> right mm-hmm. absolutely and and like one of the things i uh, on our podcast i forget who said this i need to go back and figure out who said this but uh the quote was that fundraising is like it's not convincing people to invest in your startup it's searching for the believers in other words it's going through all these no's until you're finding someone who already kind of has a thesis in their head that matches yours. You're sort of pattern matching, right? Or, or matching ones that already believe what you believe. And you're so it's just a process of getting through the other no's to get to those one or two or 10, you know, investors that, that kind of believe as you do. And then, yeah, so I think yeah. that's... And, and and also you mentioned about investor updates. I think that's a great way to get to a yes, right? Because it kind of gives more assurance, especially if you're making progress, you know, from one update to the next, right? It just makes it I, I love investor updates. I am constantly like pounding the table for founders to do investor updates on a regular schedule because there's so much advantage to it. There's so much value in it. Like you just said, you know, you can use an investor update, which is just just to cl- clarify what that means. It's like a one-page little summary of, you know, what you do, recent progress, recent milestones, probably a little metrics table, maybe a, an image. We have a product for this in Founder Suite, and so I'm thinking of like the template that we use. Maybe a product, an image of the product, a little section on what you're going to do next, like what's coming up next month, and then a team a team image, right? And that's about it. So it can be really, really short and sweet. Doesn't take too long to write this stuff. But the value is investors can see you're making progress. They can see your metrics are getting a little bit better every month. They can see that in in the last month's update, you talked about how you're going to, you know, pursue partnership deals with Microsoft and Salesforce. And then in next month's update, you talk about how you won the deal with Salesforce or whatever it may be, right? You're you're yeah. signaling to investors that you can plan ahead, you can execute on those goals, and then you can report back a month later or two months later on your progress. And think about that from an investor's perspective, right? Yeah, if it's more assuring. <laughs> yeah, well, you're impressive. You're like making things happen over and over and over again. That's someone I want to put my money into, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's very yeah, powerful. Okay. Yeah. One thing that I would like to talk about is like, you know, not getting no, right? That's also a problem that usually happens because investors are also trying to like, you know, leave you hanging and then see how, how things are going. So how do you think you can get a fast no? And do you get, think get that it, is helpful? Get, how do you, you get, get your no, no faster? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are a couple of things to that. One is when you're actually in a pitch meeting with an investor, at the end of it, assuming it's going okay, you know, or gone pretty well, sometimes they 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 go disastrously, and you just want to get out there as fast as you can. But assuming the pitch meeting has gone pretty well, at the end, actually, just you know, having a, a quick conversation with them, saying like, "Thanks so much for meeting with me today, Rahul. I would love to hear, you know, what is your typical check size, and what is your interest level in this deal, and what are next steps." And so really just putting it back to you as a question, you you being the investor and and seeing what they respond with is, do they have a next step, right? If they're interested, they'll probably say, let's get you scheduled for a partner's meeting next week or whatever, right? They'll have a next step 
I think also to the extent, some something else I, I, I tell founders a lot is to try and run a pretty tight process where you're packing in a lot of meetings at once and trying to run kind of a timeline, like a real strict time frame. Investors will often ask you, you know, how's the round coming together? How's it going? And you want to be able to answer that with statements like, it's going pretty good. We're about two weeks into this fundraising so far. I've got 10 meetings this week. I've got 12 meetings next week. We're running a pretty tight time frame. I'm aiming to close this out by Easter weekend. That's our goal. It's not a hard deadline, but that's our goal. And you know, I'm expecting our, our first term sheets about three weeks from now. We've got our data room set up. We're using Foundersuite to manage this process. And so running a pretty tight timeline. And so that's just kind of signaling that investors and even putting in some some little fuzzy deadlines in there sometimes like once you get maybe a first term sheet you know going around and saying hey we've got our first term sheet or two every everyone else who's interested in putting down a term sheet we'd like to get those in by you know Friday the the 22nd right kind of having some timelines that way investors can can opt out if they're not willing to kind of play along to your time frame They'll come up with a no. They'll come up with a reason why they can't match your timeline or whatever. If they're interested in the deal, they'll they'll match whatever timeline you put down. <laughs> you know, I've seen deals get done really fast when the investors are hungry for it. So I wouldn't let excuses like they can't match your timeline be a good. That that's kind of a no, right? If they're they yeah. can't match your timeline, that's another version of no. <laughs> so that's forcing their hand to kind of make a decision, yes or no. And that's what you want to do, right? You want you don't want to be strung along by a lot of investors. That's really painful for for founders. The deal gets kind of stale. You never get momentum going if you're gonna kind of getting strung along. So you want to move everyone towards a yes or no. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, strategy. You know, to have it all in, in in a week or two, so that you become the maybe the top. There are not many investors, right? So in, in a city. Uh, there are very few investors and then if you're going around and if there is an interest, they talk to other investors. So then you yep. become the top of the ground kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and I wouldn't uh, put, wait, let me just add a little more to that. I wouldn't put on like hard dates because things move. There's always a little squishy, but you could even say like, you know, today is, as we're recording this, it's March 1st, right? So you could say from March 1st until March 21st, I'm doing all my first round calls first pitch meetings, first Zooms, first coffees. And then March 21st through, you know, April 14th, I want to get into kind of second round um, further further discussions, partner meetings. Uh, we're going to share our data room at that point. Everyone who wants to go through due diligence, I'm, you know, hoping or aiming to get them in to our data room by April 7th. I mean, you can kind of have soft, you know, timelines around this. And I think it's okay to share that with investors that this is how you're running this process. I think they, they can respect that. So anyway. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about Easter holiday. So <laughs> I'd like to ask you a question regarding timing, right? So this is something that I did not understand when I, when I first started fundraising many, many years ago, um, that, if you're if you're working with a, a European investor uh, or a, somebody based in the US, uh, you have to take note of their summer holidays and their Christmas holidays because nothing ever happens during those times. So <laughs> because I'm from, I'm based in Singapore and then uh, 
there's no such summer holidays it's just either hot or it rains <laughs> yeah there is a seasonality to fundraising i think you've identified a couple of them like there's especially i i'm going to i'm not calling the europeans lazy i think they're smart because they take longer holidays deeper <laughs> vacations yeah <laughs> but you know you hear these stories of like the french and german and and other investors you know just going completely offline from july through august or whatever the the timeline is i i think um it, but there's something to that even with us based investors as well um a lot of fundraising happens after labor day in the us labor day uh is like early september I, i don't know the exact date but basically like between call it beginning of september and uh thanksgiving which is late november christmas you know september october early november a lot of fundraising happens right there's very active deal cycle and then you get christmas holidays and and all that stuff and then i would say there's maybe another spike after new year's eve where a lot of maybe like 2 weeks after new year's eve right because people actually take another 2 or 3 weeks <laughs> around that time i know this because i get the auto responders from investors sometimes where it's like i will be out of the office and completely offline until january 21st like wow that's a great christmas break anyway another spike in <laughs> fundraising activity um after new years and then yeah i think it slows down a little bit in the summer so sort of like two cycles yeah. but deals happen all the time especially like you know the market's pretty hot there's a lot of stuff happening people are on zoom all the time they might be at their their cabin in tahoe or vail or whatever but they're still doing you know zoom meetings and pitches so anyway yeah so so other than wait, the- wait, one last little bit about that i think there's even a contrary strategy i've heard some people do i haven't really done this myself where they're actually reaching out to investors around the christmas time frame mainly because investors aren't getting as much stuff thrown at them they're not getting all these intros happening at that time so there's less noise so you know i don't know what is if that's a better or worse strategy but i know some people have done that <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so there's also uh, you know people always say you know you should raise as early as possible uh but then there is also this point that when you're really early you don't have much to show so how how can you get your timing right yeah that that's one of these like startups are a collection of seemingly impossible puzzles to figure out how do i get traction when i don't have capital how do i get capital when i don't have traction and founders just if you want to be successful you find a way you make it happen right that's just the way the one little pet peeve i have with our customers sometimes because they're all fundraising they're all raising capital and i get them coming to me complaining like it's this phrase if i had capital then i could xyz and like you're already dead if that's your logic that you have to get funded before you can make stuff happen you've already lost the game right like the good founders are making it happen one way or another and there are a thousand ways to do that right maybe they're they're still working the day job and taking their paychecks and funneling it into the startup maybe they are consulting or you know doing whatever partnership deals with at, at, without much profit just so they can keep things going right they're making things happen so that or or even like they're hustling in ways you know you're seeing this more and more 
where they haven't actually launched the product yet, but they put out some landing pages describing the product. They've got people to sign up for you know early waiting list or whatever, and they're running some Facebook and Google ads on those landing pages to generate and prove demand before they've even built a product, right? So there's hundreds of ways to kind of get the, the wheels going. And that all makes it more attractive for investors. If you can come to me as an investor and say, hey, I haven't built this yet, but I have this really well thought through vision for XYZ. And we've got a waiting list of 22,000 people who have put down a $10 deposit on this or whatever, you know, that is a pretty backable deal, right? So yeah, you just got to get creative in, in how to hustle. So how do you know that using Founder Suite is like really helping with your fundraising process? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a very valid question. It's a little tricky to answer because we are not like a crowdfunding platform. Like a crowdfunding platform is very black and white. You go and list your company on on a crowd on Kickstarter or whatever or an equity crowdfunding platform and you either hit your funding goal or you don't, right? It's very black and white on crowdfunding. Ours is not so much because ours is, there's not a public facing page that's like where investors are finding you. It's really more, as I call it, kind of hunting where you're going in, building a target list of investors, maybe 100, 200, 300 relevant investors. You're reaching out to them, getting connected, sending the investor updates like we've talked about, running them through your process. But so the, the, the two kind of ways I can answer that, are we actually adding value to this process is... We have literally thousands of people who say, this helped me so much. <laughs> it's anecdotal, right? But it's people saying, this helped me run a process. This helped me stay organized. This helped me find the right investors. Actually, I'm not going to name his name. I actually had an founder. Our pricing is $49, $16 a month. One of our customers wired me like $4,000 last month. It was so cool. He wired Founder Suite $4,000 because he had found two of his lead investors in our database where he, he wasn't able to find these otherwise. He didn't have to do that. This was a complete, he was just so grateful that he actually wired us, you know, a hundred times what our actual software costs. <laughs> and it was really cool. It was really cool. And then he went on to go to my Carmenade and all this good stuff. So we're hearing like the anecdotal evidence that it was working. Also, I can, now to be clear, we don't go in and look at our customers' accounts, but I can pull from the database and see how much if you think about our, our our pipeline board, there's a column called committed. There's like contacted, pitch, diligence, you know, all this stuff. And then there's a committed column. And typically you'll assign like, if I'm raising money for you and it's a million dollars, I'll type in a million dollars, 100% committed. And that gets added to your board of or your tally of how much you're, you're raising. So we can see that. And I haven't even run this in probably over a year. But last time I ran it, there was $3 billion in that committed column across our, our startup. So, you know, would they have been able to achieve that $3 billion without Founders Rate? Possibly, but we're also seeing just really incredible success from the companies using it. So yeah, <laughs> kind of a squishy answer, but that's, that's the way it is. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And, and uh, I really appreciate it. It's fun to talk about this stuff. I always like hearing how people are trying to crack this perennial puzzle of how to raise capital. It's like, you know, it's kind of a puzzle that people are reinventing over and over again and, and doing it different ways. And I'm always learning 
a little more on on how to do this and new ways people are finding it. So, so yeah, hopefully we're we are adding value in the marketplace and check out Founder Suite if you're raising capital. But I really appreciate having me on the show. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please follow Understanding VC wherever you're listening to this, and also share it with folks who might be interested. Thank you.